Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Flatirons Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. This show is brought to you by Flatirons Tuning, your source for any aftermarket or OEM Subaru parts. Be sure to check out our store at flatironstuning.com, and stay tuned with Flatirons Tuning. Welcome back, everybody, to the Flatirons Tuning Podcast. This is, hey, what's, what's your, your problem? problem? Number two. So we've got some more questions that we wanted to put together into a podcast, and let's just dive into it. Uh, DP, what is the first question we've got here? All right, our first question is from Lucas via YouTube. It says, I'm a family man with perpetual aspirations for building all the Subarus I own. Hands up if you can feel that. Yep. Yeah, that's you know, pretty, pretty that's, typical. That, that life, right? You know, money and time are sparse, and as you know, the build is never finished. Yep, perpetual project. Mechanical issues are easy remedies for me, but the above is not. These are my Subaru problems. Suggestions. Well, I, I think the first question is, what do you want to do with the car or or cars? Yeah. Is it just, is it, do you just want to build them or are you actually wanting to use them and track them? Right. Like but that. I mean, first things first is like, yeah, this is, this is something that, that you and I both are, are mired in. Yeah. Uh, it is, it is a tricky thing. It is, you know, but there's, there's always ways to find time. Like, you know, if you get up early in the morning, you know, like, that's what I do is I carve out some time in the morning just for me. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. so I get up and don't have to, like, feed a small one or attend to any of the, you know, the needs thereof. I can yep. just selfishly, you know, have some like, 30 minutes or so of just mic time. It's kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. I, I am not so lucky. I can't wake up in the morning. So I, I just I just steal time wherever I can, if possible. I, I think... My, my leaning for this solution here is to keep things simple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, try and keep it so that whatever your projects you're doing require a minimum amount of time so that you're not pulled away from doing other things as much as, as, much as feasibly uh, possible. Um, and, and maybe, like, the thing that I struggle with most is, like, I, I really want to get back to going to the track, but that requires, like, a lot of time to prep the car. You know, just basically a whole day to go to the track, you know, usually, like, a couple late nights before going to the track and that's that's where it's just it's a real struggle to find that time so i really really sympathize here um i've got one other really good suggestion that's helped me out too is uh include your family with like sure you know i include my son in rotating tires doing brakes yeah he helped me do spark plugs yeah he's four so he's not like you know oh dad you're using the wrong answer right but he's there He's included. He coached me on my oil change just last weekend. Yeah. But he felt involved. You get the kids involved. I mean, for one, it, it you're setting the stage for getting them interested in and getting them to the point where, you know, they know how to do some of this stuff. And then, you know, it's actually time that you're spending with them. Um, tried to do that with my, my kids, but they haven't quite taken off yet. Let me keep after. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say here is, is again, just like picking the projects and keeping them simple or, you know, know that like, like if you're doing a really involved project, like say you're, say you're removing and reinstalling a sharp block, plan so that it's, uh, you can do it in small stages. You can do it in little bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. Um, that usually means that it takes twice as long, but, um, you know, that way, you know, if it, if you can get 30 minutes an hour a night, and that's that's how you want to spend the time plan the build out to break it up into those in those ways and then like organization there's key you know like keeping track of bolts 
you know, take pictures or take pictures of, of the hoses and such, or, you know, put the bolts in cups, keep them, keep them clearly labeled. So if you're coming back like a handful of days later, you know what you're looking at um, versus like you can spend your hour going through bolt spins trying to figure out what, which bolts pulled on what thing. And, oh man, yeah, it is, it, it makes it, can make it more of a slog, but um, yeah, I mean, if, if that's how you can utilize your time, then you can still get there, get through it. Yeah, get it done. All right, this comes from Jesus Tapia. Uh, I hope I said that at least close to right. Um, 2013 WRX tuned on flex fuel with an FP black, 40mm uh, external gate, uh, Tome uh, equaling header, 1200cc injectors, IG fuel rails, whole list of mods. Um, big one here is that it is tuned on flex fuel. And uh, the issue was he was driving around for two weeks and then the ethanol content kept dropping from 30% down to 2.4. And when the ethanol content dropped, then the car ran very rough. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see. And then after AFR learning, I uh, went up to about 18 to 19.5. Then after driving around, bounced from 2.4 up to 30%. Wants to assume it's the flux fuel sensor, but is not sure any help would be great. I mean... This one really sounds like it's the sensor. Now, yeah. I, I want to say uh, my assumption here is when he says he's driving it around, I, my assumption is that he's not adding any fuel to the tank in that process. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm assuming here when he's saying that these AFR uh, flex fuel numbers are changing, that's just you know driving the car around and giving it time, not changing actually changing the mix in the tank. Right, like just straight up that tank. Yep, that's where that's where I'm kind of assuming too. But yeah, it really feels like it's the sensor. Like, yeah. So with with ethanol content, so um, there's a sensor in the engine in line um, on the uh, the fuel feed line. So basically, as the fuel is coming into the engine, goes through the sensor. That's where it gets its reading, and then it goes into the engine. Now you have your fuel in the tank. You know, fuel comes up into the engine. But then there's a return, so there's some of the fuel from the engine that goes back to the tank. Um, there's So there's basically this flow of fuel from the engine to the tank and from the tank to the engine, and it, and it basically turns around and gets mixed up. So what I would assume is like if you put in fresh E85, and then and from that point on you're driving it, the mix of ethanol really should not change at that point. Right. So like once, you, once you've got everything in the tank and it's sealed, and like... You're driving around for just a little bit amount of time like that that fuel return and the feed of, of the fuel to the engine you're going to cycle the fuel around you're going to mix and, and you should have pretty pretty much a homogeneous mixture of, of gasoline in the 85 at that point um so if if that's the situation and you're getting this fluctuation in readings then that would point to an inaccurate sensor mm -hmm. and and seeing that the content drops and then the car runs poorly well, if you actually have 30% ethanol, but then the car thinks you only have 2% ethanol, it's going to add uh, maybe less fuel, possibly run lean because it thinks you have gasoline, so you don't need as much fuel volume as you would if you had 30% ethanol. Yeah, and then it would just like lead you down that rabbit hole of like, you know, yep. it's ping, 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 like, oh, I'm angry, I'm angry, and you're just like, I'm yeah. sorry, car. So that's where I, I think, you know, if you know if you're not changing the fuel and you know that the mix of ethanol is, is more or less a constant and you're getting this fluctuating reading yeah you need to, to look for what the cause of that fluctuating reading is 
could certainly be the sensor, but check your wiring too. Yeah. Uh, especially if it was recently installed. Um, you know, some, if something got loose or is rubbing on a surface and worn through, um, you know, just, just double check all the wiring side of the sensor as well, just to make sure that there isn't something just on the grounding side or something that is, is causing that erroneous reading. Yeah. yeah. All right. Our friend Ethan Payne from YouTube again has an 04 wx 146,000 miles. Just put on a downpipe, cap back, cold air intake, and a VF39. Okay. He's good. Turbo. Yeah. It's a great turbo, great setup. Um, tuning the car right now, but he says he can't push the car past 12 pounds. And says it might be because the boost controller is not hooked up right. The, uh, the tuner said that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And uh, so he checked. It looks like it's hooked up right. So he's thinking he needs a new boost controller. Um, what do you think? So it's possible. And, and I'm guessing what the tuner means by that is not a new factory boost control solenoid, but one of the aftermarket options, mm -hmm. Cobb, Grim Speed, so on. Um, definitely possible. There is a key detail in the factory boost control system. And, and Cobb Tuning was, were the first ones to really clarify this years and years and years ago. Um, so basically, the way that the factory boost control system works uh, is, is through a, a bleed-off method. So you have the compressor where you, you have pressure, and then that, that's piped into T basically to a T, and then that T goes to the wastegate actuator, and then all the way over to the solenoid, which then connects to the turbo inlet. So it's basically using the vacuum from the turbo inlet to pull that pressure away uh, from the wastegate to keep it from opening until the solenoid closes, and then the pressure opens up the wastegate. But there's a key component in this plumbing, which is the restrictor pill. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you remember this restrictor pill? The infamous... Yeah, so this is, what this effectively is, is it's like a bead, mm -hmm. like, you know, just a round, a, a BB with a hole in it, and it's in the factory plumbing, and usually there's a paint mark on the on the little vacuum hose coming off the compressor of the turbo where that restrictor pill is. If you squeeze the rest of the hose, it's going to be squishy. You squeeze where this paint mark is, and it's rock solid, that's where your restrictor is. A long time ago, man, this is, <laughs> this is a long time ago, before... Back in my day, before there were aftermarket boost control solenoids, the restrictor pills are what the tuners used to get you into a boost range that they could then fine-tune with the solenoid itself. Mm -hmm. The smaller the opening you put in that pill, the higher the boost pressure you're going to be able to hit. The bigger the opening, the lower the boost pressure was. So if you if you had like a, a boost creep issue or an overboosting issue, they put in a pill that had a larger opening hole. Um, and if you wanted to, like, say, try and get towards... 18 to 20 pounds, they maybe put in a smaller restrictor yeah. um, to try and, you know, get you into a higher boost pressure range. Um, now, of course, once the aftermarket solenoids came out and it really kind of took over, then everybody stopped having these little, you know, tubs with all these different size restrictors that they would have to, like, fish into the hose and then make sure that the, the hole was oriented uh, more or less straight. Struggle. So, that, yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy. But what is very common here is... Under, if you if you place those vacuum hoses and you remove that restrictor pill altogether, you underboost because mm -hmm. now it's way too easy for that uh, pressurized gas to get from the compressor over to the wastegate. Yep. And and that's that is what what you're describing here, Ethan, is kind of textbook for missing that restrictor pill. Yeah, definitely. Twelve psi bleeders. Yeah, but you know all all that being said, and, and part of the part of the difficulty here is with the VF. 
uh, I'm sorry, the VF39 um, versus the TDO4 plumbing. There's there's a little bit of differences in the sizes between those two turbos. Sometimes the factory um, vacuum hoses don't move over as easily. Um, if you do go to an aftermarket solenoid, those have a completely different calibration range and you don't need the restrictor anymore. That's uh, for, from a tuner standpoint, I think that's why they preferred them and why once they became widely available, everybody just shifted to like a Cobb, Grim Speed, the old GM boost control solenoid because it just took this complicated variable out of it and made it just a lot easier to tune. Yeah. Yeah. This is a longer question, but this is from one of our patrons, uh, Pop, yep. Lock, and Drop It. Um, so we wanted to take a good look at it and, and kind of go through these. Yeah. This is a... It's a Forester, so you go so ahead. This, yeah, this is the, the fog lamp. Again, yeah. keeping it square. It's got 2004 Forester XT. Yep. I hope it's Java Black Pro like mine, because, you know. It's one of the better colors. Yeah. 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 175,000 miles. Coolant in the oil. Oh, no. And yeah. white smoke from the tailpipe. Oh, no. Yeah. You know, he's been told that maybe he's got a ring line failure, low compression in one hole. And probably probably head gasket issues on top. Yeah, so it's kind of a compounding mess at that yeah. point. But... So, so the good news is what he's done is he's, he's replaced the short block, or he's in the process of replacing the short block. And so he has some questions about, about that process. Yeah. So... So the first question is, um, he knows you need to support the transmission once the engine is moved, but how do you do it? Um, what, is, what is the best way to support the transmission after you've pulled the engine out? What, what are your thoughts there? You know, I mean, it's probably on the ground. You know, like this car might be on a hoist. It's hard to know, like, where we're at. I, I, I'm assuming that so, what his question is here is you're pulling the engine out of the car, but the mm -hmm. transmission is staying in the car. So, I mean, when we, like, we had a piece of, we had a piece of bar that we used in the forest room. We were, yeah. You know, fussing around and kind of really, really gently and delicately with extra precision, mm -hmm. jammed it through and left it, let it rest on the subframes, like, just put it all the way through right. and just, yep, stuck that thing right there and, like, you're done. Yeah, so this, the, the crux of this question is, so the engine is mounted to the front subframe. Yep. The transmission has its own subframe. Mm -hmm. But then the two of those together is kind of what spans the gap between those two mounting points. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, some, some kind of a mount like that. If you've got a, uh, a jack sand, you can put it underneath there, something like that to hold it in place. Basically, just wherever the car sits, whatever you can do to just kind of take some of that load of the transmission bell housing to make sure that it's supported, mm -hmm. that just... In any uh, any method should suffice. Any but all. as you say, DP, like extreme precision. Like yes. Be as precise as you can with whatever mallet or or other bludgeoning device <laughs> you need. Yes. Yes. The precision hammer. I, I, that's my favorite kind of hammer. That's right. High precision hammer. Yeah. 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 All right. What is what is his next question? Oh, next number two is and he's got the driver's side of the engine bay is covered in a thick layer of black grime. My favorite was that. Didn't that happen? You know, schmutz. Schmutz. Yeah. Schmutz yeah. is yeah. my favorite word. Yeah. He thinks it's oil, but he doesn't really know what things look like when you leave them on there long enough and they get coated in dust and other various sure. things. It said, you know, comparatively, the passenger side doesn't have that same issue. Mm -hmm. So he wants to know what it could be and where to start. I mean, my first and foremost, because I'm kind of a tactile guy, touch it. Put it between your fingers, 
Yeah, see what it is. And then, clean it. Yeah, and, and I would go one step further here. So you're, you're pulling out the engine to go through it and replace it. Um, probably, I, I think in this case, he's putting in a new short block. So, right. the, so the heads are probably getting gone through, going to be bolted to the new short block. So you're going, at that point, to have all new seals. Right. If, if like, let's say you didn't have a, a serious issue and you're pulling the engine out and you see this. Um, like, I've, I've actually seen people do timing belt services this way. Now, and the rationale versus doing it in the car is if you see any leaks like this, if you, with Subarus, it's quite easy, relatively easy to pull the engine out. Yeah. Right? So if you pull the engine out, you get to this point, you see all these leaks, now you have the engine out, you have unfettered access to get in and replace any of these seals that you might need, need to to stop this leak. Right. Um, I would say replace them all. You know, like it's, it's it's easier than a lot of cars to replace or to pull the engine out of the Subaru. But once you're there, don't don't skimp on the you know four dollar seals, ten dollar seals. Just replace everything. Yeah. Because then, if you know that all the seals are new and it goes back together properly, you shouldn't have any leaks. And you're going to have to do that if you're bolting on new heads. Right. You're going to have new head gaskets, new valve cover gaskets, all this sort of thing. Make sure you go through the cylinder heads or have a machine shop go through the cylinder heads. Mm -hmm. Make sure that they're decked so that you're going to get a a good seal on them. Um, but then that brings me to hoses. Yeah. So when you see stuff like this, like you're saying, touch it, look and see it. where you might be yeah. coming from. Look at the hoses mm -hmm. in and around that side of the engine. Do you see the same kind of grime or, or hoses that have a lot of like oil residue, liquid oil, especially a lot of goop coming out on, on the sides of the hoses? That probably indicates that the hose is not sealing properly, could be leaking. Um, also, like a lot of these PCB hoses, this is this is where they get they get old, hard, crusty. They they turn solid. They don't seal anymore, and then you get this oil vapor from the from the crankcase ventilation that comes out and the, and then deposits on the engine and gets sticky. So I would say take a real hard look at all of the hoses on the engine and anything that is hard, crusty, looks like it's leaking. This is this is the time you want to replace them to make sure that when you go up, you put everything back together. The hoses are fresh. The seals are good. Um, everything is going to be buttoned up like it should be, and then mm -hmm. more than likely, knock wood, um, the the oil leak will go away as well. Absolutely, because it'd be a real bummer to put in your brand new tasty short block, and then it's just pukes oil everywhere. Right, or or it looks like it's got a hundred thousand miles on it in in you know two weeks of driving around. Yeah. yeah. All right. Next part of this question is metal in the oil. Ooh. That he says he's been told that if you have metal shavings in the oil pan, you probably should replace everything that the oil touches. Agreed. Um, and he does have metal shavings in the oil pan. Ouch. Oh. But that happens. And he's, he's trying to put together a comprehensive list of everything that he would need to replace. Now, we actually have uh, a long time ago put together a video on bearing failure and said exactly this. If, you're, if you've had a bearing failure and there's metal contamination going through the engine, Anything that the oil touched that you're going to reuse, you've got to be either 100% sure that you can remove any and all metal contamination or you need to replace it. So, yeah. with that in mind, I mean, what are what are your, your usual suspects for things that you'd replace? I mean, I'm putting in, like, the little oil lines for the turbo. You know, I'd probably look at, like, you know, your ABCS solenoids yeah. just because you can't get it out of there. Solenoids are a tough one. It, it they kind of fool you to thinking that you can clean it up, but yeah. it, it's hard to know for sure. If right. There, if and if there's any doubt, 
the, the reason for this is if you have something from the old engine that has metal contamination and you bolt it onto the new engine, that metal contamination can now, it's moving right into this new engine and I have seen instances where, where that's done. Yeah. And and the new engine fails very quickly because you, you've moved the, the problem from the old into the new. Yeah, and you know, sometimes when you've got a new engine, you've got fresh new happy oil and so something could come dislodged and well, then it's just yeah. all over with the crying at that you, point because you did it again. You have engine braking happening. So yeah. like in that in those first couple oil changes, first couple startups, I mean, there's going to be some material that's coming out of the engine as braking happens. And if you couple that with all these other larger particles of contaminant that took out the first engine and move them over, that, that is a that's a that's a bad formula. Yes, and it's just a perfect example of a terrible idea. So. Yes. Yeah, I yeah, all the hoses, you know, just to make sure um, those yeah. lines and you know, I mean, they're pretty inexpensive too. So it's yeah, usually the hard happen. lines, mm-hmm. the hard like baby says hard lines. Usually those you can clean out with with brake clean. I mean, that's there's not there's no place for metal contaminants to hide there. But like like I said, the ABCS solenoids and the ABCS pulleys themselves. Yeah, because there's chambers in there where the oil resides, and so if, if that contaminant has got in there, very difficult if 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 even possible, for, for the DIYer to get in there and, and clean those out and get them to work properly again. Yeah, that, that's the big key there is, yeah, you can take it apart, but when you get it back together, it may not function the same way it did, you know, or as intended. That is the challenge, yes. Um, the other one I'd add here, because it's no four forester, it does have the factory oil cooler. So the factory oil cooler has a lot of chambers in it. Very, very difficult to properly clean out. Way better to just replace it so that you know that there's no contamination moving over with the factory oil cooler. What do you think about the turbo? Do you think it's got to go? You, you I, I would not it? reuse it. Not that's not you know anything I would want to be part of really. Like I'd I'd want it because you know it's you know small and precision and yeah. it just takes that one little and then it's again it stops blows out a seal. Yep, goes through to the drain, wipes the bearing. The, the turbo is the most common one that I've seen where people move it over because it's an expensive unit. Yes. Um, where where then they have a, a subsequent engine failure, like the first 50, 100 miles. Um, if you can send, if there's anybody that can go through the turbo, rebuild the center section, clean it out, that's a great option. Um, there are some mechanics out there that say they have techniques for cleaning out the center section of the turbos. If, if, if they do, you know, I, more power to you it's i tricky. i think i'd just wait you know i'd use my you know my points from buying a short block right and i'd probably just apply the discount and get a new turbo yeah like, it's the best the best practice would be to replace the turbo but it, i mean it is an expensive component so definitely understand if you need to look for some other option there but that would that would definitely be something that at a minimum would need to be addressed yeah um you know i'd probably look at oil pressure sending I, usually that could be cleaned. I mean, it's that's a fairly simple device. But yeah, I mean, but it's a, again, like cheap insurance. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's like 10, 15 bucks. Yeah. Not a big deal. The oil pan. Um, do you do you like cleaning an oil pan after bearing failure or not? Oh, no. Yeah, getting up underneath the baffles is it, challenging. Yeah. A, a lot of times it is just easier to replace the oil pan versus clean it. But again, there's some some shops, some mechanics that have techniques or they have. You know, special cleaning rigs or whatever, where they can you know hot tank it, get everything out. Um, just kind of see what they say. But best case, or you know, especially for a DIY where you don't have like a tank or something, uh, would be to just replace it. 
The other big one is silverheads. If you've had a bearing failure, especially like a catastrophic bearing failure, um, have a good machine shop that's familiar with Subarus clean them because there's a lot of oil passages inside the Subaru head and there are caps that, that basically have deadened passages um, that you're going to want to clean and replace. So a good, a good machine shop familiar with Subaru stuff is going to, to take those out, tank the heads, clean them, then put them all back together. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that is that can be a gotcha as well. Yeah, and that's one that is probably really often overlooked because it's like, oh, heads are still there, right? You know, we can you know, we're gonna clean, and then there's just like that one little piece, and then it's yeah, and it's because it's a dead end passage. Yeah, even if you tank the heads, I mean, the contaminant can just sit there. So right. you really want to have them properly cleaned. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and I think his last question here is about camshafts you know assessing the camshafts okay well pull the cams yeah you know it's not something unfortunately you can just look at and know like you're gonna have to get in there and um use fingernail thumbnail and if you catch it on anything it's got to go yeah if if your thumbnail fingernail moves smoothly over the surface on the cam if you see rings or something like that it's probably so minimal amount of wear that it's just not something that would cause an issue but if it feels like you're going over a record or you can feel a couple deep scratches where your nail gets caught, that gouge is probably deep enough that it would cause problems. And what I would say here, like camshafts, certainly, but the other component here are the cam journals on the cylinder heads. Yeah. You've got to inspect all of the all of those journals on the cylinder heads the same way because that those surfaces are not something that can be machined. There's no bearing that can be replaced there. There's no oversized cams like with the larger journals or anything like that. If the if the cams themselves or the journals on the heads are damaged, then that's where you would need to replace them. Yeah. yeah. All right, DP. What is our last question? Our last question comes from EGP, who's on the Flat Earth Team Discord. He's uh, one of right. our patrons as well. So yep. Want to make sure to check his you know, check out what we can do to help him out a little yeah. extra there. He's got a 2013 WRX hatch. Okay. And he's got a weird, pardon the term weird, but you know idle issue where it's kind of hunting around trying to find where it wants to be happy yes now and the cool thing here is he's very descriptive about it but he actually sent a data log actually showing what's going on with the idle and the afrs at the same time which is very handy so if you have a problem like this it's awesome to be able to collect that kind of data yeah that's i mean that's invaluable data there because like we ask you know for like if you've got check engine lights but if you provide us with a data log that's amazing yes so basically, the, the crux of the issue is it should be idling about 700 RPMs, and mm-hmm. it goes up slightly, then it'll drop almost down to 600, feels like the car wants to die, and it's just up and down and up and down. And let's see, um, he's he's looking for what the root cause might be. He's I, he's looked preliminarily at the post-map hoses and, and vacuum, and he doesn't think he has a vacuum leak, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have a smoke tester either. So, yeah. That's that's tough because really like you know, looking at like looking at the log and talking about the, you know like this this hunt like that. I bet he's got a vacuum leak. Like right, you could almost you know it almost be worth trying to assemble one. You know, like make a little cap and or a lot of shops have these these days. Yeah. I mean, you can maybe just drive your car to them, have them do the smoke test. Um, hundred bucks and then then get the piece of information find out and know yeah. um the key thing with the logs is you can see where the rpms are dropping there's the fuel trims increase 
it brings up the RPM and then the, the fuel trim to try and like normalize and then the RPM drops. So the, the, the telltale sign here is the fact that the fuel trims and the air fuel ratios and then the idle are moving. You know, basically one is one is affecting the other and you can yeah. see that this is the tool that the ECU is using to to try and control the idle. On an older car, like say a GDWX, where you have the cable throttle, there is an idle air control valve. There's an actual valve that sits on top of the throttle body that's moving to try and control the airflow, to control the idle. It can get gunked up, it gets stuck. There's, there's a gasket there that can leak, and then that can cause some of these sorts of issues. But since this is a 13WX, this is a newer car, this is an electronically controlled throttle, the computer should have no problem controlling idle. So when you're seeing that it's, it's doing fuel trims and the air, moving the AFRs up and down, and that that is tied to this erroneous idle issue that he's having, yeah. it kind of points pretty darn strongly to some kind of a vacuum leak. It does, you know, but I mean, I want to take a second just because I'm sentimental like that to look at how hard that computer's working. Like, yeah. it is really like sweating. It should have like a little sweat band on. Yeah. Be like, <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's cool that the computer can do it, but knowing that it's having to work so hard to try and stabilize the idle, it, it really points strongly to some kind of a vacuum leak. Absolutely. It's causing an issue. Which, it's frustrating too, because I mean, there are quite a few vacuum lines and things on there to check. Yeah. Yeah, and so you mentioned that there's no smoke test, uh, and so let's talk about, let's say you don't have access to a smoke tester, like there's, you're, you're in the middle of the woods, you're yeah. in a rally, you've got some kind of issue like this going on, what what can you do? What are, what are some alternative you know, options? If I've got brake clean or carb cleaner on board, yeah, I'm going to try and get like that little red straw that shoots off when you put it on there, I'm going to put it in yeah. there so I get a precise little stream. And I'm going to hit it like the base of wherever that vacuum hose that I'm, you know, like, and I just start one side of the engine and spray right where that connects. Yep. If the idle goes up, I found it. Yeah, this is where you always, having a can of car clean, you always want to have a can of car clean if you can. Yeah. For exactly this reason. It is it is combustible enough that if you have a vacuum leak and you spray the car clean in the vicinity of the vacuum leak, you know, you're going to hear the idle increase and then drop back down again, almost exactly like what we're seeing here. Yeah. Um, and then if you know where you precisely sprayed it, like you just don't spray down the whole engine, but if you, if you know where you sprayed it, now you know where to really look. Um, the other thing I would say about here is like taking a really good hard look at all of your vacuum hoses. Um, anything, anything you see signs of leaks, like with your PCV system, though that is a vacuum leak that is connected to the turbo inlet, that vacuum leak could translate into some kind of an issue at idle like this. Yeah. So, you know, I mean... You know, those turbo inlets never tear or, you know, anything. True. Like, and they're not made of brittle plastic that... Well, also true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that happens. It, I mean, and that, hopefully, if you don't have the smoke test machine, that's where, like, the carb cleaner, like, really, you have to explore all over the engine. I guess that's the biggest point that I would come to is yeah, the valve covers, anything to do with the PCV system, those big vacuum hoses on top of the engine. You can't just look at the intake path only. You've got to look at all these other systems mm -hmm. that are tied into the turbo inlet because any leak in, in all of those vacuum hoses comes back to the turbo inlet. It would be a vacuum leak that could potentially cause an issue with the idle. You know, I actually, funny enough, had an issue with the Forester that I didn't really think a whole lot of at the time, but I was driving, just cruising, mm -hmm. and I noticed my boost gauge wasn't responding. Oh, yeah. And I was like, well, that's weird. I'll check on that when I get home. And so I popped the hood. Yeah. And sure enough, the little vacuum port to the gauge come up yeah a tiny little hole 
But it was doing the same thing, hunting for an idol. No check engine light. It was just like, go, 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 go. Yeah. Like, what are you doing to me? It, that, that is the most frustrating thing with these vacuum hoses. They're so small. They get hot. They get brittle. And just one of them breaks. And it could just ruin your day. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got you to look at them all. Um, if, if, if everything is stock on this car, like stock turbo, stock intercore, stock um, hose between the intercore and the throttle body, these cars, the 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 WRXs with the top-mounted intercoolers, um, the factory hose between the intercooler and the throttle body can be troublesome to get in there because you've got this really big intercooler that sits right over it. So you just don't have a lot of good room to get in there and get to the hose clamps and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that hose can slide off. might be worth inspecting. Yeah. The other interesting one I would say would be to look at your... Um, Potentially look at your intercooler just itself. Yeah. So if it's the factory intercooler, I mean, it is almost 10 years old, so maybe that's been replaced. But if it's the factory intercooler and you can't find anything else anywhere, spray some of that carbon clear up and down the uh, crimps for the intercooler because it's a plastic in tank crimped to the aluminum um, okay. center section of the intercooler. Mm-hmm. Those can get loose. Now, now, usually you would also see issues where you're not able to build enough positive boost pressure there. But if, if those tanks have come off, um, mm. that you can actually have a, a, a vacuum leak as part of the intercooler itself. Man, um, that'd be a bear. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Again, this is something where a, a smoke tester would show you, mm-hmm. but lacking that, I mean, just you have you have to really be creative with that card cleaner. It, yeah. Because if there is some kind of a vacuum leak, you just got to get that little, little jet of card cleaner in the right spot to see that idle move, and then you know... Know where that issue might be. Yeah. So, well, hopefully that helps you guys. If 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 we help you, let us know. If we were wrong, also let us know because we'd love to know what the problem actually was with these things. Um, I think that's the last question we have for right now. So, but definitely want to say, like, for us to keep coming back and making these episodes, we need your help. We need your questions. So, if you've got questions for us, uh, leave them in the comments below. Reach out to us through, uh, you know, or, or contact us email on the website, flatironsteam.com. Um, you can, as you've seen here, you can actually leave something for us in our Discord, in the Flatirons Team Discord. Um, and you can also, like, if you want to send us pictures or whatnot, you can do so through the tickets or, or an email um, on the Flatirons Team site. And we'll, when we get more questions together, we'll come back and we'll make another episode of Hey, What's, hey, your, what's problem? your Problem? Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. Once again, we'd like to let you know that your support is what makes this show possible. Be sure to check out our online store at flatironstuning.com for any of your aftermarket or OEM super parts needs. And as always, stay tuned with Flatiron's Tuning.